Grab your Bibles with me and turn to the letter of Ephesians. We continue our sermon series through the letter of Ephesians today in chapter 3. I've been blessed personally to prepare to preach verse 14 through 17. A sermon that I've titled, Praying for the Saints. I want to read to you verse 14 through 19 so that we can consider our text for today and the second part of this passage that I will preach next Sunday, Lord willing. Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 19. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul begins this point in verse 14 to say, For this reason I bow my knees. For this reason, other translations say, For this cause. This is the same translation or transition that that, that Paul has used in the beginning of chapter 3, Ephesians 3 1. For what cause? For what reason? Well, for the reason of what he just spoke of in verse 1 through 13. For the reason of the gospel at work in grace and faith in Paul and in so many of his brethren in Christ. Paul is saying, because this is true of me and it's true of you, I now pray for you for all that God has for his people in Christ. Paul says, I bow my knees. This is a descriptive way to say that he's praying for them. Before we dive into what Paul prays for, let's consider this practice and posture in prayer. Paul says in Ephesians 3.14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. We see that bowing of one's knees is an act of respect and honor and submission before God. God declares in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23, To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. This declaration of submission to God is re-echoed by Paul in a couple different places in the New Testament. Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And in his letter to the Romans, Romans 14, 11, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Oh, what a day it will be when every knee rightly bows before the living God who is worthy to be praised and honored. Amen? Now that said, Paul bowing his knees here is simply a way to say to his listeners that he's praying. That he's submitting himself before God in prayer. Church, the fact that we can even pray to the living God is another wonderful reminder of the grace of God to redeem us, the work of the Holy Spirit to empower our prayer, and the work of God the Son to mediate our prayers. May we never take for granted the fact that without the gospel and its renewal, there is no prayer life. And therefore, there is no prayer for one another, as Paul's about to model for us. One of the things we will see is that Paul's prayer focuses on all three persons of the Holy Trinity. As Christians, our prayers are Trinitarian. We pray to the Father through the Son, and by the Holy Spirit. 1 Timothy 2.5, There is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Church, without Jesus, our communication with God is broken because of the chasm of our sin. We're desperate for Him to be our mediator. 
Praise God for the good news of Christ, which restores our relationships to God the Father and our communication with Him. Romans 8, 5, and 16. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit enables us to not only believe, but also to interact with God as His children. When we truly get this, we will talk to our Father often in prayer. And it will be our joy to pray for one another. Can I just ask you, how much time are you just finding space throughout your day to just go to prayer and to pray for one another? Do you run to him in prayer, church, not just in the emergencies, but throughout the day? Do you bow your life before him in reverence and respect? Notice here that Paul bends his knees before the Father so that he can pray for his beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. In this, see with me, Paul is practicing what he will didactically say in other letters, that all Christians must pray for one another. Church, our prayers are for one another, and this is a vital part of our Christian life and witness. And let's see and savor the example given here by Paul and embrace Scripture's command to practice it regularly. Look with me at the next part of the verse. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, a a quick passive reading of this verse might cause us to, to think of something different than what Paul's intending here. We bow to pray to the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. This is not in relationship to the fact that God is sovereign and no one came before him or the fact that every family of every ethnicity and nation has its roots in the Creator himself. While this is true of God, this is not what Paul means here. Paul is speaking of the family of which God is Father in the redemptive sense. In the sense that both our brothers and sisters who are in heaven and those who are still on earth belong to the Father. Remember with me, Ephesians 2.15. In Christ, God has created himself one new man in place of the two So making peace. Remember also what Paul has said in Galatians 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's a unity. We are one family. Looking forward to the end of time, John is given vision of the redeemed and the glorified family of God in Revelation chapter 7, 9 through 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb church understand with me that the family of God our family is a diverse family that is made up of many ethnicities and nations and people groups oh there are so many wonderful layers of good news that we are reminded of in this see the new humanity in the new creation of salvation scripture teaches that in Adam all die But all who are in Christ live. 
We are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone and the new has come. So when Paul says that Christ abolished the law and commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself a new man, one new man in place of the two, so making peace, Ephesians 2.15, see the new man are those who are born again. Those who are no longer in Adam. Whether Jew or Gentile, whether black or white, male or female, they are in Christ. And the things that once separated us in sin are united in peace in Christ. Oh, how much we need this good news of true reconciliation and unity, especially in this moment in our lost culture. This very moment we're in. When sin and wicked man-made agendas are perpetuated and riots and online arguments and divisive propaganda is all around us attempting to stir the flesh. Church, so much of this is utter confusion and simply the agenda of the spiritual forces of darkness. We must begin And continue to think biblically, church. For example, there is no such thing as racism. Because there is only one race. The human race. Do we understand that? Now, there very much is such a thing as ethnic prejudice. And Scripture is clear that it is sin. It is sinful, it is wicked. There is such a thing as sinful hatred among mankind, and so we must see that the problem is sin and not social constructs. To go there is to not go far enough. The answer is the Gospel. The power of God to transform dead hearts to life. The hope of the world. A world that is on fire. Literally. The only way to truly correct ethnic prejudice. The only way to heal sinful judgment of others and belittling of each other. The answer to sinful male hierarchicalism or sinful feminism is not political advancements. It's not liberal, social, systematic reform or utterly flawed, man-made ideologies of wokeness. It is Christ. It is the gospel. And church, we, we have it. We possess it. We've lived it. And it's our job to get it out there. See with me the collapse of the walls that have long divided mankind by ethnicity or class or gender is the work of Christ alone. Only in Christ, only Christ can bring true and lasting reconciliation to dead men's wicked hearts. Only in Christ can we fulfill the command of Scripture to be impartial to others. James 2.1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory. Church, I want to encourage you to be oh so mindful to not pick up the mantles of man-made systems of, I- of ideology. I get why lost people invent them and cling to them as their only hope. Why? Because they have nothing else. But you don't. You have the answer that really heals the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Realize that when you, as a redeemed Christian, pick up or participate alongside secular agendas or political causes or cultural trends, you put down the megaphone of the only thing that actually brings lasting transformation and renewal, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't have time to get into all the flagrant ways that many of the popular movements 
are not just failed, but wicked and anti-God and gospel. We elders are working on other communications to help you have biblical insight into these things. And we will attempt to share these things with you shortly in fulfilling our job to equip the saints. But we must see the work of Christ and what He has done to unify a once sinfully separated people into one family of God. The testimony is all around you, church. It is real. The hatred, the priorities, the things that once divided the people of this very church have been overcome in Christ. And now we have a family unity that is deeper than the blood of our parents or deeper than our ethnicity. It is bound in the blood of Christ. Church, don't forget who you are in Christ. Don't let old dead and sins, separations and judgments play out in your heart and mind. Be who you are in Christ. Live in unity with your blood-bought brothers and sisters for His glory and the testimony of the gospel. Mankind that was once enslaved to sin and selfishness, now in Christ, has true unity and peace among all who were once divided. Church, we don't need to join the world's revolution. You are a blood-bought member of God's revolution. And the gospel you know and testify of is the only sign you need to hold up. It's the only post you need to make. Everything else is a distraction. Jesus, give them Jesus every moment of every day. There is no hope in anything else. We who are the church, this is the hope we know and testify of. This is the good news of Jesus Christ who is changing lives today and all over the world in God's perfect time as the gospel is at work in and through us. One love. It's a gospel thing. One family that is made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Praise God. Let's move into verse 16. As he solidified this united family of God, he, he says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. When Paul says riches of his glory here, he means the vast amount, the plentitude, the surpassing value and width of his glory. It is everything in God that makes him absolutely glorious. Glory is a word we use a lot, and I've found often not quite rightly or, or fully is it understood. So let me take a quick moment again this morning to remind us, what is the glory of God? The glory of God is the holiness of God put on display. It's the infinite worth of God made manifest. Isaiah 6, 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. When the holiness of God fills the earth for people to see it, it's called glory. Holy means He's set apart from what is common. In speaking of God's glory, God's infinite value shines. God's glory is the radiance of His holiness, the outstreaming of His infinite value. The highest aim of our life, of all of creation, of all things, the, even the driving motivation of God is His eternal glory. To put on display His power and glory is the purpose that governs all the works of God. 
He elects, he predestines, he calls, he redeems, he justifies, he sanctifies, and glorifies to this end. So when Paul says, according to the riches of his glory, let me ask you, is God's glory poor or rich? It is really rich. It is the most wealthy, the most vast, the most bright. Church, may we be a united people, a praying people, and a people who are in utter awe for who our God is and what He is due. Look with me at the second part of verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Three things we see here. Number one, strengthened with power. Can I just point out, church, there is no better place to go to be strengthened with power than the one who is all-powerful. God is our strength for every day of our lives in every circumstance. We need His strength for many areas of our lives. We need His strength to resist temptation and to do or say what honors God at each of life's crossroads. We need His strength to speak truth despite the consequences or hardships it may bring. We need His strength to steward our days well in body, mind, and spirit. Ephesians 3.16, According to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Paul says that the strengthening and power that God gives is through His Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, is one of the three persons of the Holy Trinity that make up the Holy Godhead. It is important to understand that the Holy Spirit is co-equal in essence and eternity with the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit is not less important or less God than the Father and the Son. So when Paul says he's praying that the saints are strengthened with power through his Spirit, understand it is God's Spirit. This is true. But it also is true that it is a unique work of the person, God the Holy Spirit. This is also true. According to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. The presence of the Holy Spirit, church, in our inner being is huge news. This is because apart from the grace of God, the work of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit to make us new, to save us, we were completely dead in sin as we've studied thoroughly in earlier parts of this very letter and elsewhere. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. Titus 1.15. To the corrupt and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Their very minds and consciences are corrupt. This is total depravity, the state of being spiritually dead. This is not just that some parts of us are sinful and others are pure. No. Every part of our being is affected by our sin apart from Christ. Our intellects, our emotions, our desires, our hearts, the center of our desires, our decision-making processes, our goals, our motives, even our physical bodies are corrupt. But when we are saved in Christ, we are reborn. And most critically, given the Holy Spirit to dwell within us, to work in and through us. While we are sanctified in relationship to God because of Christ, 
complete and sufficient sacrifice in our place. We are not sanctified as in we are perfect and without struggle in our flesh to sin. That's an ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. Our ongoing progressive sanctification. So when Paul says that he's praying for the saints, that they are strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, he's praying for the power of the Holy Spirit, which is now on board in our person, in our inner being, to go to work in making war with sin and self. How many days are you guilty of trying to fight sin and, and, and depression and, and longings for, for, for indulgence or, or selfish agendas? How often are you going about that all on your own? Oh, we are desperate to tap into, to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to do this work in us. Paul speaks so well to this battle in Galatians 5 16 through 26 look there with me for a moment Galatians 5 16 through 26 but I say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the work of of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Amen? Man, praise God. Church, a Christian is a person who is at war with the desires of the flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit. Understand, Christian, the war within you is a good thing. Because if there is no war within you, it's because the flesh controls the entire dominion of your soul. Praise God for the war within. Because serenity in sin is death. As I've said before, dead men don't struggle. If you trust in Jesus, the Spirit has landed to do battle with the flesh. So take heart of your soul if it feels like a battlefield at times. This is what Paul is praying for. That according to the riches of His glory, that He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Christian, there is a power at work inside of you. That power is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is fighting, illuminating, purging the work of the flesh. The Holy Spirit is exposing the flesh. It's replacing it with what honors God. The work of Holy Spirit power. If if there's no real war, if if the battle is not happening, if you're just resolved to just be in sin, this is very concerning. A person who simply surrenders themselves to the desires and works of the flesh, who's not at war, is the person Paul speaks of when he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
In other words, if you practice sin and are unrepentant and show no authentic regard for the Spirit, no embrace of real accountability and confession of sin, repentance, then this is very concerning. Because the fruit you are bearing is that you're completely enslaved to sin. If this is the case, you need Jesus. You need salvation. You need the Spirit to fill you and make you part of the kingdom. Until then, hear me clearly, coming to church is not enough. You must have and walk in the Spirit. You must be reborn. The Spirit must come on board. And His power go to work. Church, it is the Holy Spirit who is the one who works the sanctification and character change that harvest godly fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Christian, are you too dependent on your circumstances going a certain way? And only when that's the case, then you're loving, then you're self-controlled, then you're peaceful, then you're gentle. That's the work of the flesh. That's, 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 that's forced. Only the fruit of the Spirit at work produces those things, despite our circumstances. The flesh is incapable of producing such fruit. And if, and if, if, there, if there's a manifestation of, of some kind of fruit like these things, then it's counterfeit. Maybe even forced, but it won't be lasting. You might squeeze out a little self-control, a little bit of peace, but if that's not the work of the Spirit in and through you, it won't last. God-honoring fruit is the product of the Spirit's presence in our lives. If you're struggling, can I say this? You don't have a performance problem. You have a power problem. You're not abiding in the vine, dying to self to live to Christ so that God can work in and through you. If all you're concerned with is what's happening out here and you never tap into abide in what's in here, you will never know true and lasting sanctification in your life. Did you catch verse 18 here of Galatians 5? But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Key word there, if. If you are surrendered to the power of the Spirit and not the power of the flesh. Church, some clarity on how the Spirit leads. If you're led by the Spirit. The Spirit is not a leader like a pace car in the Daytona 500. It is not something you try really hard to keep up with. And it's up to your power to stay on that path. No, the Spirit is a leader like a locomotive on a train. You do not follow in your own strength. You are led by His power. So let's walk by the Spirit. Which means we're hooked up to the divine source of power. And we lead according to His divine written word. We go where He tells us to go. Paul is praying for his brothers and sisters here in this. And I'm praying for you in this. That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Let's see what he says next in verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. When Paul prays for his blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ, that they may be strengthened in power by the Holy Spirit at work in their inner being, he prayed that Christ would dwell in them. In case you're thinking, Paul wasn't just talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our inner being. Now he's talking about Christ indwelling us too. Holy Spirit's indwelling us. Now Christ is indwelling us. Is this confusion or is this just a party? The answer lies in looking to all of Scripture, Toda Scriptura. Scripture speaks of all three persons of the Godhead dwelling within the lives of the redeemed. 
This needs to do nothing more than solidify in us the reality of the triune Godhead and his perfect work in us. Charles Hodge said it well, the virtue of the unity of the divine substance, he that has seen the Son has seen the Father also. He that has the Son has the Father. Where the Spirit of God is, there God is. And where the Spirit of Christ is, there Christ is. Paul speaks this way in his letter to the Romans, chapter 8, 9, and 10. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So when Paul speaks of Christ dwelling inside of us, he's referring to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, with whom Christ is one. For Christ dwells in his people by the Holy Spirit. Paul puts this to work in his own life, and again, a very famous, very important passage in Galatians 2.20. Hear it clearly. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Church, Christ is in us and we are in him. This is a common way that Paul clarifies the power and transformed condition of the Christian whose former condition is that of sin. We were in sin and sin was in us, but now that transformation has happened. Now we're in Christ and Christ is in us. Praise God for new birth, amen? For regeneration and gospel renewal. Praise God for his dwelling in us, not in, moment, not in just momentary ways, but in ongoing ways. The word dwell is focused on a lengthy amount of time. It, it's not a passing or quick thing, it's lasting, it's ongoing. To dwell, in the way that Paul uses it here, means to take up permanent residence. It's not a temporary encampment or visit. Just consider the absolute wonder and privilege of this church. Christ Jesus our Lord, the Lord of all creation, the worthy and mighty and majestic Son of God, comes to dwell in my heart and life. Me, little old me, wretched, selfish, and sinful me, it is our great joy that Christ possesses us and truly and fully owns us as our master and leads us in his ways. Christian, is it your privilege to be owned by Jesus? That he is your master to obey and serve him in every part of your life? Now there's a flip side to this dwelling in us that Christ does, and it's our dwelling in Him. We who belong to Him should do. Scripture commands the saints to dwell in Christ in phrases like focus on, cling to, hold fast to, be rooted in, abide in. Remember Jesus' famous words in John fifteen five: I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Christian, are you abiding in Christ? Are you dwelling in him? To abide in Christ is the call on every one of us every day, every moment of the day. To abide is to stay plugged into the source of life, which is Christ himself. Is your faith journey feeling like a big old roller coaster lately? Huge ups and downs? Likely this is due to your inconsistency in abiding. 
and really abiding in his word and in prayer. And when we drift and we get busy and we get focused on other stuff, now we start to live out of the, out of the flesh more. And then, and then things rear up. We do not thrive in the Christian life by turning away or unplugging. It is in these seasons that we drift hard, that we wander, that we slow down, that we see and savor sin instead of Jesus. Think of a time recently, brother, sister, by which you have just really struggled. See how you likely were not truly abiding in Christ to lead you, to settle you down, to empower you and direct you. You're not in charge when you're abiding. You're submitted to Him. To abide is to remain constantly in Christ, pondering His Word, acting for His glory and will, living out who He is in you. We are so desperate for Him in this way. A weak illustration to help give us view of this might be something like, Jesus is not just a defibrillator that jumpstarts you. And then you're done and you move on. No, he's more like a pacemaker that keeps your heart going. Without him, you wither, you die. He is forever a part of us. The source of life we are dependent on in every way. This is why the branch and the vine metaphor that our Lord uses is perfect. Because a branch that is separated from the vine is a dead branch. It has no source of life. It cannot attach itself to the rock and thrive and grow fruit. It's desperate for the vine alone. Its desperation is not a one-time thing either. You don't just touch the vine and then you're good to go on your way. No, you must be grafted in. Desperate for Him every minute of the day to thrive and produce real fruit. John 14, 23, just a little before what Jesus said about himself as the vine, we are the branches. In John 15, John 14, 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And he will come to him and make a home with him. If you really love God, you will keep his word. You will stay plugged in. You will obey his commands. You'll trust him and walk by faith. Oh, we must not pursue our own agendas, our own ideas, our own desires, but instead we must dwell or abide in Christ. Again, I ask, are you, Christian, abiding in Christ? Every day, throughout the day, one of the reasons why you, why you might say no is that you're not holding fast or staying rooted in His Word. It's too much of a touch it for a moment, open it for, for a minute, 20 minutes, and then you're done. Some of the brothers that I'm privileged to be discipling right now would say you're not dwelling. Dwell is an app that some of them use that reads scripture to them throughout their day. My guys are faithful to dwell on God's Word with the help of this tool. By listening to Scripture while they run in the morning, while they get ready for their day, while they're driving in their car, while they're working and more. I remember much of my own brother Matt's testimony, one of our faithful elders, when I was discipling him in his earlier years of his spiritual journey, he would listen for hours and hours during his work day, splicing thousands of wires down in a manhole, but dwelling on the Word of God by listening to Scripture and sermons for hours a day. This is dwelling. When you're dwelling in Christ church, you're praying often. You're constantly considering His Word and letting it wash over you, being reoriented by its truths. My own wife is 
a helpful conviction to me in this. She's very good at this. Constantly I find her in, in many moments of her day just listening to scripture or, 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 or good preaching. I'm guilty too often when doing the little things of the day, shaving and listening to music. Church, how are you dwelling? How are you dwelling in Christ? How are you dwelling in the Word? Let me tell you that you're not dwelling with all the time that you're checking Facebook or Twitter. All the time you're spending endlessly just looking at stuff online, shopping many times for stuff you're never going to buy, watching pointless videos, working through your Netflix catalog, or working up high scores in video games. You know why some of my guys are so disciplined to be in Scripture as much as they are in this season? Because many of them got off of Facebook and deleted the games on their phones that steal so much of our day away. I'm not saying you have to do that, but is there a real discipline to put it away? Christian, are you guilty of dwelling in these modern medias way more than you're dwelling in Christ? This is a huge problem. And I know it's real for some of you because I see how much you're on. Comment on every little thing. But you don't do that without constantly turning your phone on and going to it. Let your testimony be way more of these things, way less of these things, to be way more of Christ. Our church, are you dwelling in Christ and His words so that Christ and His Spirit are dwelling and producing much fruit in you? Praise God that He has decided to graft us in, and for without Him, we can do nothing good or God-honoring. Finally, for today, Paul says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Why is faith so critical for this? Because it is through faith in Jesus, trust into Jesus, that we abide. We cannot just believe about Jesus. It is not enough to say, I accept Jesus and the things he said. You have to trust your life to him. You have to trust him with all of it. Trust is committing your lives to Jesus. It's passing over the line of belonging to yourself. Now you belong to Jesus. It's dying to ourselves and living in Christ. This is true conversion. The word conversion means turning, representing a spiritual turn, a turning from sin, a turning to Christ. The turning from sin is called repentance. The turning to Christ is called faith. John 3.16, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The Greek word Paul, uh, Jesus uses here for the word in is better translated into. Whoever believes into should not perish but have eternal life. There's a big difference between believing about and believing into something. And baking your life on it. You're putting all of your life into Christ. If Christ is not enough, then you're done. But if He is, then you're saved. There's no parachute here. You're, you're all in or you're not. We don't add a little bit of faith in Christ so that we can be covered. No, Scripture says we die to ourselves to live in Christ. In this, we must see that a believer in Jesus is not someone who just proclaims belief in Jesus or trust in Jesus at one time. But a true believer is one who lives their life trusting in and believing into Jesus. So if your life is marked by a repetition of stated proclamations of belief about Jesus, but still at the end of the day, you live your life trusting yourself, then you are on the throne of your life, and you are still dead in your sin. It is only when the stated proclamation of belief in Jesus, faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord is backed by a life that submits to Jesus as Lord. And you trust God's will. And you obey His commands. 
in this we have confidence that our claim of belief is not superficial, but true and final. Paul grounds his prayer for the beloved in faith. Without faith, without true trust and submission to God, we have nothing. Hear it again, church. Ephesians three fourteen through 17 For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Holy Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this divinely appointed time to gather in this beautiful setting, to be able to have possession of your written word, that we would know truth. Our ideas that the agendas of man, policies of man, solutions of man would be conquered, would be overcome by the power of God, by the power of grace to bring forth new birth, transformation, and ongoing sanctification, the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh God, we are so desperate for you. And so I pray that in no way would this sermon, this time, be just a moment to engage and move on, but that you would wreck us, you would capture us, you would move us to ongoing clarity, to true humble confession and repentance that produces lasting fruit. May we abide in you. And we thank you, Lord, for all the ways that you are dwelling in us. The Holy Spirit empowering us. What a joy it is to be part of this united family. This restored and reconciled family. All the dividing walls of hostility broken down in the power of Christ. May this gospel move out of us as we move from this place into this broken and fractured world. May it be what we have to say and show. And so we worship you now to exalt your holy name for you are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.